Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. If we haven't met yet, my name's Carson. Um, I'm the youth pastor here. Um, And if you can look past this goofy haircut and you enjoy it, um, then you're welcome at youth anytime. If you're not, you would love Pastor Jeremy. Um, But um, I'm glad you're here this morning. Can we start with prayer? God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in this room and gather with people who are seeking something. Um, And we believe that your word is holy, able to divide um, the distance between our heart, our soul, and our flesh, God. And I pray that you would just tear away the things that don't glorify you this morning, that you'd be honored, um, and that the Holy Spirit would be with us in this room as we begin to unpack um, your word and what it means to us. Thank you for who you are, how you love us. Your name, amen. Amen. Everybody say amen. Let's go. Hey, as I said, my name is Carson, and yesterday was an anniversary of Madeline and I's. It was uh, July 8th. It was the anniversary of our first date. That's right. We're four years in, and she still likes me, so we're pretty excited. And um, my in-laws were in here earlier, so I hyped them up. They're not in here. This one's free. Uh, They watched our six-month-old baby so we could go out on a date. They were so gracious to us, and we had a good time. But we met at elementary school camp. We just got done with camp season. That's why the dates are lining up. Um, She was taking a group from her church when she worked at Mount Perrin North, and I was taking a group from the church that I grew up at. Um, And even though there was a mishap of exchanging numbers, I've had the same one since I was 11, but I still managed to give it to her wrong, Um, I managed to give her a call. So I give her a call, um, and... One of the first things I learned about her was she was like, hey, uh, I don't really like texting. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to earn this. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, I'm going to give her a phone call. So I called her. I was like, I'm going to ask her out on a date. Um, and in the middle of the phone call, I'm pacing around my parents' backyard. And in the middle of the phone call, she's like, are you running? <laughs> so like, I was breathing pretty heavy because I was really nervous. And so that's kind of really embarrassing. But as embarrassing as that was, a couple moments later, my heart stopped entirely. I asked her if she wanted to go out with me. And her response was this. What are your intentions? So she knew what she wanted. Madeline had never dated a boy before or anything like that. And so she was like, what are your intentions? And I mustered up, I only date for marriage. And I do. Like I had a testimony, God had changed my life. And I was like, I only date for marriage. That's the way my parents raised me. And she was like, perfect. Let's go on a date. I accept. All right. So less than two weeks go by. And I don't want to leave anything up in the air. You know, I didn't want to leave a girl guessing or anything like that. So I'm like, I need to make a decision um, and do what the kids are calling, make her my girlfriend. So... Um, yep. So, uh, I decided I'm going to call her. I'm going to make her my girlfriend. Um, but I decided to take her out. We went to, um, this place in Kennesaw. It was a coffee shop. It was formerly a house. Um, and I was super excited, but on my way there, I just felt this check in my spirit. I felt a pause and I felt something internally, internally saying to me, you can't take this next step into the future without telling her where you've been. And I was like, Okay, so I'm anxious, right? Like, I've got a past, and this girl's never even dated a boy before, and I've done plenty of things that, you know, are not good. And, um, and I didn't want to tell her. Like, I wanted to run. God had changed my life, but I still felt a lot of shame. I mean, God had called me to ministry when I was 17 years old, and it was like then I started my downroll spiral. I didn't accept him into my life until I was 22 years old. I didn't start following him and make him Lord until I was much older. 
but I can still picture it. We're sitting on a playground in between. There's a pond and some ducks and this house that's been turned into a coffee shop. And we sit down on the swings and I begin to dive into telling some of my deepest valleys and my call in the ministry and, and where I went from there and stuff that I thought being God were going to kind of like take to the grave. It was all in the past. And so I'm telling her, you know, in deep agony, everything I've ever done wrong, expecting rejection. And she looks at me and says, well, that's who you were and not who you are now. That's who you were and not who you are now. And this, this came from Madeline, but in kind of a spiritual experience, it was at the same time as if the Holy Spirit was whispering these words into my heart. That's who you were, and this is who you are now. And I felt shame, relief. I felt safe, and I felt this trust begin to grow between me, my, my future bride, and the Lord all together, right? And we know that uh, tri-braided cord is not easily broken from Ecclesiastes, and this trust just began to well up. And what I realized partly in that moment, but have seen throughout our relationship, is this, and I'll put it on the screen. The posture and the words of God, whether through him or his son or the Holy Spirit, are meant for our redemption and restoration. The posture and words of God are meant for our redemption and restoration to release shame and soften our hearts towards God, who is always much more beautiful than we realize. So the words we'll read today out of the book of Revelation are from Jesus with the intent that our hearts be set free and our lives emboldened to live out that same truth. That our hearts would be set free and our lives would be emboldened to live out that same truth. So I've got a letter. This was a letter that was written to the church at Sardis. There we go. The church at Sardis. As you can see, it's clearly labeled. But we'll read it together on the screen. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it says this. The letter to the church in Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthens what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed, Thus, in white garments, and will, I will never blot out his name in the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before, his, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to put this back in the mailbox. It's okay. Flag down. All right. There we go. So Jesus was writing to the church at Sardis this message that he gave to John and asked them to deliver. And the church in Sardis had a reputation of what? Being alive, but Jesus could see their hearts and knew that they were asleep. Sardis was a city who was compromising to the beliefs of the non-believers around them. While trying to intermingle this newfound faith that they had and the ways of the city that they found themselves in, they began to turn their back and settle into their old ways. They had the appearance of godliness because of this experience that they'd have with God, because of their huge transformation, but it began to fizzle out. And maybe many of you, this sounds familiar. I know it sounded familiar in my life. It sounds kind of like the space and society that we live in today, especially when we look across the entirety of the church, across the U.S., God's people, but also in our own lives. And before we get started, you know, just as I've said, this passage is not about the they mindset. This was a letter that was written to a specific group of people. It's personal language that Jesus 
is using here. And this is a moment where we can look inside ourselves, maybe the log in our own eyes, to use Jesus' verbiage, because Jesus is calling us to wake up. We need to look internally. This is a moment of what are your intentions that Jesus is asking about. So Sardis was a church that was filled with people who had been rescued from the bondage of life and this life. But much like my own story, and maybe some of you guys is too, we have a natural draw. Our human nature is to fall back asleep once we've been awakened to truth. And to put it simply, they'd been satisfied with the amount of God that they knew. Maybe it's 5 or 15% or 30 or maybe even 75%, all the way up to 90, right? Like they had been satisfied with the amount of God that they knew and decided to fill the rest of their appetite with what they've always known. The culture they grew up in, what was familiar to them, maybe the way their parents lived their lives, right? Like they had just been filling the gaps. Instead of looking for more of God, they decided to accept what was familiar. And how many of us have done that this morning as we look internally? How many times have we decided to just continue the way of the people before us? And we know a little bit about this church, Sardis. It was actually in modern-day Turkey. Um, And one thing that I want us to know today is this. It had a wall around the entire city. You can picture the Great Wall of China, but it was 33 meters wide. And if you didn't bring your conversion chart today, that's about 99 feet right? That's pretty big. That's 100 feet wide as a wall. That's, that's, that's pretty big. The Great Wall of China, on average, is about 21 feet wide. So they had a pretty big wall around their city, right? This is a city, though, that had failed to protect itself during the watches of the night twice. Jesus wasn't saying something that was unfamiliar to them. He was saying the truth. Both in 547, 546 BC and 214 BC, Sardis was ransacked in the middle of the night. The watch guards had begun to fall asleep and the whole city was taken over. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, he was speaking to something that was familiar as far as their history. He was speaking to a people that knew their history and telling them that they needed to wake up to the fact that we do have an enemy and he would love nothing more than for us to be asleep. First Peter says this, he says, you have an adversary and the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. He's seeking for someone to devour. And maybe his roar sounds super loud, right? But maybe he's trying to be kind of hush-hush about it. Maybe his roar is a little bit more like the Pied Piper, just lulling us along until our appetites are full with some, of something besides God. I have an analogy that I'm going to use, and I'm using this one because tonight we have a pool party for our youth group, so if you're a teenager, show up. But I thought of this. Have you ever been standing to the next, next to the edge of the pool? Maybe you're still wearing clothes, right? Um, not even in your bathing suit or anything like that. And almost this spider sense of danger comes over you. You realize something's going on. Maybe it's just a guy thing. But you begin to look around, and you see your friends, and they've got this look in your eyes, right? And you begin to think, okay, I'm going in the water. I'm going in the water. That's, they're going to put me in the water, right? Like, has anybody ever been there? Has anybody ever been put into a pool, right? What's, what's the next thought in your mind? Does anybody know? Your next thought is, okay, I'm going in the water, but I'm going to take them with me, right? Like, I'm not going to go in alone. If I'm going to get wet in my church clothes or whatever, like, like if they're going to put me in this pool, they're coming with me. I use this because that's the enemy's plan for your life. The Bible says he knows his future. And as silly as this analogy may seem, right? you got to realize that's his ultimate goal. One of the ways the enemy gets us back into our grave clothes is by lulling us to sleep, right? He would love nothing more because he is an open grave than to take you with him once you've already received the knowledge of truth. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the, four seed, the seeds he was sowing into people's lives and kind of often the four outcomes that comes. And, and the two that don't 
turn to him. One is on rocky ground, and it says this. The person with the seed that falls on a rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word, and he receives it with joy. But since they have no root, it only lasts a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. And then he said this about the ones that were choked out by the thorns. He said, some people hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the world out. They choke the word out and make it unfruitful. The words of Jesus are clear. We have an enemy that's not satisfied. He's seeking for more people to consume. He doesn't want to go in the pool alone. He wants to take as many as he can with him. So I read this passage, and as I was studying it, an immediate thought came to my mind. What's stripping us of knowing God? What's lulling us to sleep as a church, as human beings? This was written to a church. What are we as a church, both here at Generations and globally, you know, the United States, across the world, what are we letting infiltrate us and ultimately lull us to sleep? And I thought of two sins of this age that I think are really bothering us, that are contaminating the church and that lull us to sleep. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. There's only two things on it. But instead, one that we would reflect on. And the two things that came to my mind are this, pride and indifference. It seems we as God's people often fluctuate between these two things, either not caring about our actions enough, indifference, or caring too much, pride. And the world is often overwhelming and mundane at the same time, right? That's what this life feels like. And this enemy wants nothing more than to exhaust us from the back and forth of the highs and lows. These types of individualism, individualism, pride and indifference, as the world shifts from cultures and people groups to an individual self-mindset, right? Like in ancient history and times past, you were identified by the people group that you were a part of. That's how you like knew who you were and who you were supposed to be. Well, now with the internet, you have access to any people group and any thought that you want to have. And it's put us in an individual self-mindset. And it's hurting us deeply because it's a pseudo-freedom, right? Like it's not, it's not a real freedom. Nothing about just becoming your truest self finds freedom, becoming anyone you want to be, right? Like God has set a plan for who we're supposed to be and has called us to a specific life, but this world seems to promise us something that actually locks us in more chains than we started with. Now, there's all two, life, two all like types of blurred lines in this indifference and pride, but as we coexist, remember this is a reflection exercise, so let's talk about pride first. St. Augustine wrote in his book, City of God, this as sort of a definition for pride. I'll put it on the screen for you. Pride is undue exaltation. Pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving of undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him, God, to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. He says pride is the beginning of sin. And if it's something that opens us up to any sin, we should be aware of it, right? Like pride is a sin because it takes away our mindset of who's in charge and who says what's good, right? Pride is undue exaltation where you abandon the author of life and become your own God. It's the root of all sinful nature, serving ourselves over the one that our soul truly needs. The Bible's not quiet on pride. It says this in Proverbs 11 too. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And then in chapter 16, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. So you're an enemy of God if you're proud. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And then a few verses later in 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit 
before a fall. Did anybody else's parents say pride comes before the fall to them when they were a child? All right. Maybe I was the one who needed to hear it. Okay, it was just me. My parents were like, listen, you need to settle down. So there we go. But pride comes before destruction. Pride comes before the fall. Like you ever been up on yourself and then you're real down? You know what I mean? Like pride comes before the fall. And then we see Jesus list the evils that defile a human being in Matthew 7. And sure enough, pride is on the list. And honestly, if we're being real, like I can't think of something that God hates more than pride. I think it's something we all struggle with, but I think it's something that God hates because pride has the ability to justify any action. That's why it's so scary. Pride is the ability to justify any action, and it's often unrealized by ourselves, right? Um, I wasn't going to do this, but um, has anybody ever been told they had bad breath? You don't have to raise your hand. There we go. Some students are confident in the front. Has anybody, you guys can lift your hands. Has anybody ever been told they have bad breath? Is anybody willing to admit that? Really? Okay. No one's ever walked up to you and been like, do you want some mints? And that's the same thing. Um, but like oftentimes, like pride is like bad breath. Like oftentimes, we're not aware of it. We've been tasting it all day. But somebody, I mean, I almost told somebody in the lobby a second ago. So I don't know what y'all are talking about. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but like pride is like bad breath. Oftentimes, you, you can't taste it. It's your mouth. You don't know. You need someone to tell you, and that's why it's so scary, because the culture we live in as an individualist culture doesn't allow for other people to speak into your lives, unless it's something you want to be, right? It doesn't, it doesn't allow people to speak into your lives when it's something you don't want to be, right? Like, we need, it's God's plan that people would walk beside us and lead us, right, closer to God. That's one of the whole benefits of marriage and walking in Christian community, that maybe they're bringing something to the table, a picture of God that you've yet to realize. And together, as we grow together as a church, we could be closer to God. But pride justifies our sin and covers them up. And it doesn't allow any room for healing. It only allows room for calluses. And the problem with that is pride hurts our church, the body of Christ, because it's directly against the promises that Jesus came to carry out. In the prophecy of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, he says this about the Messiah. I will give them one heart. We're going to throw it on the screen. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is what God promised about the Messiah. The promise of God is that our hearts would be tender and would be one together as the body of Christ. But pride continues to callous us and harden us towards each other instead of the plan that God's had for us. It's not accomplished when we hide our sins and harden them. If we do not walk together as one people and consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, as Hebrews says, then our community, the church, loses all its integrity. Not just its integrity, but its power. If we're not willing to admit our faults and come together as one, then we lose the thing that makes us unique and valuable in this world. Second one's indifference, or you could call it complacency, right? It's the second sin that I kind of see plaguing our church. Indifference, like pride, it takes us into a territory where we minimize our own sin. But rather than proclaiming ourselves as God or Lord of our own lives, we end up portraying God as someone who takes no action in our lives. We act as though God sits in heaven and pays no attention to us down here, and this results in a life that believes our actions have no consequences and thus not taking our walk seriously, right? Our walk with him. Maybe it's a I'll follow Jesus and fully commit down the road when I'm ready type of mindset. 
And this plagues people so deeply because oftentimes um, the people who aren't following Jesus really closely are the loudest and tend to speak up the first, right? Has anybody experienced that? Again, reflecting inside, but this is true of our culture. And it's often seen in our culture by the inability to see the evil of the age. The enemy tempts us by causing us to focus on things so small that we can't see God's character and the beauty around us. And it can turn into depression and anxiety, right? When we get focused on the small things, the big things that God is doing like become a blur to us. I used this example, and in the first service, I was like, man, I probably shouldn't say this. But I said it in the first service, and um, I'm an equal opportunity guy. So um, I think a good example of this amongst people who follow Jesus is how upset everyone was by the election. I think that ultimately God is sovereign and in control, and we were up in arms about something that's really small when you look at the truth of the gospel. Like if God is setting people like free, if God is setting people free from chains, and, and that's what the blood of Christ does for us, then maybe the election in one part of the world, maybe if you didn't agree with the outcome, isn't the biggest deal when it comes to the wider picture of Christianity. Now, I knew you guys would go quiet on that one, so I'm not really upset, but I'm just saying, like, maybe that's a smaller deal when it comes to who God is and the entirety of Scripture and everything he wants to do. Maybe that's just one thing. Like, God raises up leaders, and he can tear them down, and he can do good things through evil people. If you've read the Old Testament, um, every single one of the kings in Israel, once they split, was bad except two, right? Like, a lot of the kings of Judah were bad, Right? Like, they were bad. Like, and what did God do? He still preserved for himself what, a remnant. Like, he still preserved for himself a group of people that were set aside for his glory, his purpose, and he's able to do that today. He's consistent. He hasn't changed. But indifference is surrounded by thoughts from the garden, right? Like, what did the snake say to Eve? Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree? Right? Like indifference is when we start to lull ourselves into sleep and slip back into things casually and we start to justify our flesh. It's really easy. Has anybody ever caught yourself justifying sin? You don't have to raise your hand on that one. I'll say that I'm guilty of it. It's really easy to justify sin. We love to take the easy road instead of the right one. I've been guilty. It's really easy to not do the right thing. I think we can all admit. Um, I think of the Ten Commandments, right? Like the Ten Commandments are kind of like the baseline for following Jesus. It's kind of a simpler ten rules, you know? And if we use it as a checklist, we can all be like, I've never murdered, right? I think that's an easier one. Like, but like maybe you have, right? Like David <laughs> murdered someone and God redeemed him, right? So it's not the sin that's the problem. Or maybe you go down to the next one and you're like, you know, like, like personally, like I have them all memorized because I learned a song when I was in third grade but I'm not going to sing it, but you know what I'm saying. Like, you know, you go down the list of the Ten Commandments and you think, okay, murder, okay, honoring your father and mom. I mean, I do really good at that when they tell me to do something I want to do, you know, right? Okay, yeah, like when your parents are telling you to do something you want to do, you're really good at that. What about when they're telling you something you don't want to do? And then we get to this other one that I think is super easy to forget. It's coveting, right? Like the Lord said, don't covet. Don't want something that someone else's have. And we think, oh, well, okay, God. But, like, everybody's coveting. Like, everybody wants something that they don't have, right? Like, my actions don't matter that much, right? Like, I can covet. Like, that's not bad, right? Um, I remember this phrase from, like, the early 2000s. We you raise your hand if you remember with me. It's um, keeping up with the Joneses. Does anybody remember that phrase? 
Does anybody? Yeah, I mean, I was like 10, so you guys probably remember it. But like, keeping up with the Joneses, like, I mean, there's things, there's phrases that like outlast time, and apparently there's phrases that don't stick around. Like, I mean, I still hear people say it's raining cats and dogs, and I don't know what that means, but we've lost the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. And I have to wonder, have we lost that phrase because we feel like we've already lost that war? Have we already accepted that everybody's going to covet? I mean, especially in this age of social media, right? Like I see things every 10 seconds that I want that I don't have. And we immediately want it, right? That's how fads exist, right? Like I wasn't, I was going to make a comment about Stanley Cups, but my wife has one. So anyway, um, but you know what I'm saying? Like we see something that someone else has that we like and we're like, oh, I want that. Like that's coveting. Like in what coveting does is Like in recognition, if you think about coveting, it leaves us to be unsatisfied with who God is because we're filling our appetite with wanting something else, right? When instead believing that God fills and gives us everything that we need and oftentimes what we desire. First John kind of warns us about this life and taking this step. It says in first John 2.16, it says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the father, it's from the world. The pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And I think we get caught up in this life that we want to live and the things we desire, and it fills us with indifference towards God because we start to belittle the things that we do wrong as small things, but it doesn't stop us from magnifying the things that other people do. Indifference in the body of Christ, half-heartedness towards what God says is good will destroy us. It will. That's what lulls us to sleep. And we have to pray that God would open our eyes to the schemes of the enemy. Both indifference and pride are just examples of ways the church has followed instead of leading. These two sins are running rampant in our society, and you can see them dominating not just sexual, sexu- secular culture, but piercing through the walls of God's people with little to no defense, right? Like, it's not just going on outside, it's coming internally, Right? Church becomes something it was not meant to be when these sins not only infiltrate but become normalized among God's children. When we become lulled to sleep by the ways of the age, we have no defense against the enemy when instead we're called to be a people that are holy or a people that are set apart, that are different from other people. And we we don't know God's character and we start to reflect our culture like the church at Sardis did. All of this, we lose our power. We lose our integrity. We lose our power. And when we serve ourselves pride and we show up to church, the house of God just becomes entertainment. It comes for our enjoyment. It's for our pleasure. And when you live like God has no power, like indifference, then you'll find some place to give you a spark of emotion anywhere you can, whether it's the church down the street or maybe back to where God called you out of, like in Luke eleven fifteen. But now, as the church, we need to start being people who influence instead of being influenced. We need to stop letting the culture infiltrate us and we decide that we're going to live like that because we've seen it outside. How much would our lives change or even the world would change if we stopped living as if God is not Lord and he does not act? The chasing of pleasure, the chasing of comfort, and instead we decide to discipline ourselves to the way that God says was good. What would it be like if we decide to get uncomfortable in our walk with God and started doing things that weren't just our plan? And we started walking with the Spirit instead of casually going through life. When we live like we're seeking comfort, we set ourselves up in a situation where nothing can harm us. Right? Like everybody wants an easy life. 
we set ourselves up for a situation where nothing can harm us. And we become so comfortable that it's clear we're not being led by someone else. It's clear that we are led by our own person. We live inside our 100-foot thick walls, right? And say, I'm protected. Look at me. I've done it. I can sleep well. And Jesus will come like a thief in the night while we slumber. He will show up to our little sandcastle that we're so proud of when we were meant to build our house on the rock with our friends who approve of every single move we make instead of pushing us towards the way of Jesus. And can I tell you this morning that you're not going to get to heaven and God's going to just like poll your six closest friends or whoever and be like, how do you think they did? You think they did all right? Like that's how we live sometimes. Kind of like, like they're going to be our judge and jury when we get up there and it's like God's going to poll my best friend and ask him if I was doing a good job. Isn't that exciting? No, there's only one person who's waiting on this up there And he's going to tell you the truth. He's either going to look at you and say, well done, you've been good. You've been faithful to me. Or he'll tell you to depart. He's like, I didn't know you. You didn't spend time with me. I don't know who you are. Reputation, like the one at Sardis, is deceiving. And we can't be satisfied with what people think about us. Reputation is deceiving. The reputation of this church was life, but on the inside, they were dead. And can I be honest with you? The reputation that you have does not matter compared to what God says about you. It doesn't. Whether it's good or bad, whether people think you're fantastic or they think you suck, it really matters what God thinks about you. Even Jesus said this to the religious leaders, right? He walked up to the religious leaders and he said, woe to you when people think well of you. If everybody agrees with you, it's probably not good. You know, personally, as we come to a close, I, I don't think I personally have missed more than 10 Sundays of church in my entire life. I wasn't allowed to miss church. I don't think I missed Wednesday night. Like, it, it just was that way. Like, I was not allowed to decide if I was going to church. I was going to church, right? Yet, every time I see someone from my youth, whether middle or high school or even college, I get the same response when I look at them. Oh, I can't believe you're a pastor now. Yeah. That's every single person. I mean, some don't mean it in a harmful way. They're just like, oh, okay. I, um, one of our good friends, David Waldrop, who works at Go Church, uh, he was one of my uh, small group, middle, middle school small group leaders. He's like, oh, really? Like, the terror you used to cause me. Like, <laughs> you know? I got called into ministry when I was 17 at a Winterfest conference in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. But I didn't, as I said earlier, give my life to Jesus until I was 22 years old. But I can remember the day I did can remember the day I did. I was 22 years old and I was inside a drug house that I'd been living in for several months. And the whole house smelled like pot. Now I'm sure I did too, right? Like, you know, that's one of those bad breath situations. Maybe you don't smell it, but other people do. And I'm standing in that drug house and I'm about to leave. And I don't even know if the door was open, but I hear this voice say, what are you doing? Not in a condemning way, just like a, what are you doing? And at the same sense, it it sounded like it came from out, but it wasn't like audible, like I heard it. And it also sounded like it came within, but it wasn't like I was thinking it. Like, it was like it was coming from all directions, inside and outside of me, but but at the same time, it wasn't. And it said, what are you doing? And I froze and I heard it again. What are you doing? This isn't what I've called you to. And all of a sudden, the door of the house, again, it was the middle of the day and I don't know if the door was open or not but it shone like the sun was right there. 
like S-O-N or S-U-N, either way. Like it shone like the sun. And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. And I walked out of that house and my life was changed almost in an instant. My life was different than it was before. So when I run, absolutely. So, so when I run into people that can't believe I'm a pastor, I'm in shock too. And it wasn't because I figured out some formula and I convinced, you know, worked my way. Like it, it was because a good and loving God who is willing to call you out of where you are and take you where you haven't been. And he's not satisfied with anything less than 100%. He's not, he's a jealous God. And we can say that as a negative, but he is a jealous God that is not satisfied with anything less than consuming who you are, which is far more beautiful than we can be aware. He's a God who's willing to say, wake up, strengthen what you have left. He's a God that doesn't give up on us. He doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't. And I know because I'm standing here. What God says about you matters so much more than your reputation, good or bad. And Jesus promises this at the end. He said, for those who conquer, you don't give up, right? Like Proverbs says, um, a righteous person falls down seven times but gets up eight, right? If we don't give up, he said, I will confess your name before God. He said, I will confess your name before the Father and before angels, and your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. I like to think he writes that in his blood. Because of what he did for us. It can't be blotted out. So my question is, do you know that God wants to wake you up this morning? No matter how satisfied you've been with him in your life, even if you feel like, oh man, I'm at 50, like, you know, I really like God, like, like we treat our mom and dad, like I love doing what God tells me to do when I want to do that thing, right? And we treat him like a little advisor. That's not a God. It's not a Lord. It's not somebody who's in charge of us. That's just our little friend who's telling us what to do. And that's not what God wants to be in your life. So whether you've been in church your whole life, 50, 60, 70 years, he has something more for you. Whether you walked in today, he has something more for you. He wants nothing more than for us to turn from our sluggish and even slumbering ways and meet with him. But the question is, are we willing to accept that invitation? Because there's an enemy that lulls us to sleep. Are we willing to lay down our life? Are we willing to not be our own Lord? Are we willing to trust him? See, Jesus was calling the people of Sardis to a revival of the heart. A revival much like we're seeing today all over the world. Like God is showing up in a lot of places and he wants each one of us to participate. He wants us to not just see revival and hear about it, but participate in the revival and the renewal of our souls that we would be set free. But first we have to wake up and strengthen what's left, put away the things of this world that lull us to sleep. We bow your heads. God, thank you so much, God, for the people in this room. I think pride and difference, God, the ways of this world are something we all struggle with every day, but you've come that we could be set free. God, I pray that it's just as your word says, God, that you would cut away the things that are not from you, that you'd cut away the pride, the indifference. God, that you'd fill our lives with you, that we would be nothing short of 100% available to you 
all the time, that we would walk with you, that we would be, as your word says in the first books of the Bible, God, that we would be with you when we wake up and and with you when we go to sleep and, and with you as we walk along the way and with you as we enter our house. God, that we would just be with you, that you would teach us to be with you, that you'd open up our eyes, God, that we'd be people to see what evil is and have the ability to turn away from it that we would recognize, that we wouldn't be just indifferent to everything that's going on in the world, but God, that we would recognize it and turn away. God, that you would kill our pride. God, that says that we're in control as we build just another little sandcastle in front of you. God, teach us to build our house on the rock. God, we thank you for who, we are, who you are. God, we thank you for that we can meet in this place. God, that we have the right to do that. Thank you for each person who is here today, each person walking online. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.